Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. On December 24th, 1979, Soviet troops invaded Afghanistan. They entered a country already engaged in a civil war, but figuratively, Afghans have been engaged in a war for nearly 100 years over their identity and direction. Dissension had finally led to political violence in 1978 as Afghans sought to impose upon one another their preferred mode of statehood. What happened in Afghanistan, argues Elizabeth Leake, was never determined solely by the rules of the Cold War or certainly the desires of policymakers in Moscow, Washington, or Islamabad. It was the crucible of regional desires and, above all, the crucible of Afghan desires, plans, and dreams. This failure of Afghan politics, she writes, was not preordained and was a messy, protracted affair. Elizabeth Leake is Associate Professor of International History at the University of Leeds, previously the author of The Defiant Border, the Afghan-Pakistan Borderlands in the Era of Decolonization, 1936-1965. Her latest book is Afghan Crucible, The Soviet Invasion and the Making of Modern Afghanistan. Elizabeth Leake, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So you begin uh, with a great sort of scene setting of Kabul University in 1965. Um, I, it, uh, it was like reading about, it is a reading about a vanished world. Mm-hmm. Um, not just in Afghanistan, but almost in like American history, American policy. Because you describe Kabul University and how it had come about, uh, like even who built it. And who was there in 1965? Because it's it's an ama- it's an amazing sort of scene setting. Yeah, I mean, Kabul University, I think, in and of itself has such an interesting history. It's really kind of the result of all of these collaborations between not only kind of the Afghan state, but you know, there the United States is involved. I think there are German technocrats involved as well in kind of building this institution. And it really, um, by the mid 1960s, is the preeminent kind of educational institution in Afghanistan. And there's this really fascinating moment then in the mid-1960s, um, both at Kabul University and, and in Afghanistan more broadly. It's the first time that there's an election um, that Afghans can vote in in terms of kind of deciding deciding Afghanistan's political tra- trajectory to an extent. And Kabul University, you know, like I feel like very much like any sort of university in the 1960s across the world is really the sort of hotbed for student activism and sort of political activism. Um, and what's really interesting then in the context of Afghan history is that it's a moment where all of these sort of really key individuals who end up becoming sort of the leaders of opposing sides in the Afghan civil war in the 1980s, you know, who are either fighting for and alongside the Soviets or against the Soviets, they're all active in and around Kabul University in the 1960s, uh, which I suppose really kind of shows and represents kind of how much kind of how active and how vibrant politics were in Afghanistan at this time and how in particular at Kabul University, like, there were a lot of different ideas floating around that were being very actively debated. Um, and students are really thinking about, you know, how can these different ideas, how can socialism or communism or Maoism um, or political Islam, how can these different ideas be applied in a specifically Afghan context? So just to like the run down the list, there are, there's a communist club, there's a socialist club, there's a, there's a Maoist club. <laughs> I don't, there, there is, uh, there's a political Islam, but then political Islam, even in 1965, comes in a variety of f- flavors, correct? 
Yes. So, I mean, I in the book, I talk about um, just kind of a handful of the many, many different organizations that kind of emerged in the mid-1960s on campus. Um, but yes, yeah, so I talk about the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, uh, which is formerly, uh, excuse me, formally uh, self-referential in terms of being an Afghan communist party, though kind of a, in, along the Marxist-Leninist lines. Um, and that comes into being in 1965 um, and it involves both students who are studying on campus and also graduates of Kabul University. Um, and then alongside that, I talk about kind of the, um, the Jamiat Islami Afghanistan, the Islamic Society of Afghanistan, uh, which emerges really interestingly sort of partly as kind of a secret association among faculty members of the university, but mm. also has this sort of student-led element as well. Um, and so at this point in time, students like Golbuddin Hekmatyar, who becomes a really key leader in the 1980s, is really active. And even in the early 1960s, is pushing forward with quite a militant vision um, of how he believes Islam should influence and inform Afghan politics. Um, and I would say, though, in contrast, then some of the academic lecturers, people like Burhanuddin Rabbani, again, who becomes really important in the 1980s, probably has a bit more of a moderate stance Um but I think, but, you know, and he's also very influenced, um, I suppose, probably by his by his role as an instructor in the university as well. Um, so, yeah, there's all these groups. There's a lot of infighting amongst them. And they're kind of part of a much broader sort of political and intellectual milieu where all sorts of different ideas are being thrown around. Hekmatyar, um, Rabani, who's on the PDPA side? The, we're just going to use PDPA from now on, People's Democratic Party yeah. of Afghanistan, as you do, just to keep things simple. But that's, again, the sort of the Soviet, eventually the Soviet-affiliated Marxist-Leninist Party in Afghanistan, the PDPA. Who's who's involved with the PDA? And we'll get to their factionalisms in a little bit, because they, <laughs> they have many themselves. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I guess there are kind of four, kind of four key members of the PDPA we can see in and around Kabul University at this time. Um, I guess the, the person who kind of comes to head up the PDPA and kind of become its sort of key symbol at the earliest point is Nur Muhammad Taraki. Um, whether Taraki himself actually attended Kabul University is still up for debate. Some of his biographies that are published in the 1980s, you know, they place him there on campus taking classes. Others don't mention it at all. So it's not clear um, if he was active or at least, I guess, uh, educated I, at Kabul I, University, but, um, but he yeah, lived I really think he close was... by it. He sounds like one of those guys I remember from undergraduate who like show up, they're like vaguely older and they're like coming up to you and saying, are you interested in socialist politics? Uh, you know, they're sort of like, they're sort of exactly. campus groupies kind of, you know. Ex yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's definitely, I think, not a coincidence that the PDPA is formed at his house very near the university in 1965, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, his kind of closest ally then, Hafizullah Amin, also a graduate of Kabul University, Babrat Karmal, who becomes another kind of key PDPA leader, again, also a graduate who'd been imprisoned actually in the 1950s as well for his student activism and some of his protests against the Afghan royal family. And then during the 1960s themselves, um, who's, uh, who's the last one? Um, Muhammad Najibullah, who then is kind of the, the final leader of the PDPA in the 80s and 90s, is a student at Kabul University during this time period as well. So kind of these four PDPA leaders are all really active in and around campus at the time. So that's where they all, at, they certainly all came to know each other at Kabul. Um, and as you said, we don't know if, 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 uh, if Hakmatyar and you know, Rabani knew them, but it, it's possible. And I mean, and I, and I suppose we're leaving out like 
God knows there must have been a constitutional monarchist party. There might have been oh, a yeah. Tocqueville society, a Tocqueville society for all I know. Because <laughs> yeah, it definitely. seems it's it's a very rich stew. And that kind of gets us to the whole argument of the book, which yeah. is really that this is like the first time I can remember that a two-word book title kind of summarizes the argument. Am, am I wrong? I mean, I mean was that, I, is I that your choice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say I really struggled with a book title, but yeah, I'm really hoping that Afghan Crucible sort of gives I think gives a taste of, of what the book is about. Um, and I'm so hoping, I'm hoping it's been successful. But yeah, I think something I really wanted to emphasize in this book is, yes, on one hand, it's, you know, and the subtitle sort of gives it away. It is a history of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, but I think, you know, as what, what comes clear from the book itself is that it's, it's a much bigger, more complicated history of that. And it was a history in which um, I really wanted to emphasize the significance of Afghan um, actors and kind of Afghan interest groups and, you know, and elites and intellectuals actually driving, driving the conflict and how it's rooted in a kind of much longer, more complicated Afghan history, um, as well as a, kind of the history of the ways that Afghans have engaged in really interesting and dynamic ways with the rest of the world. You, um, it has a very interesting structure. Um, you sort of, you begin in Kabul, and then you sort of gradually move out. like So it's like Russian dolls, but then you move out and then you kind of move back in, yes? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so this is very, uh, there is a narrative to it, um, but you necessarily want to look at all the various, let's put it this way, the various alloys that are melting and being poured then into the crucible where they are mixed, yes? And that's kind yeah. of what you're trying to do. How, how did you hit on this structure? Because I thought it was really, it's very elegant. Oh, thank you. Um, it, it it sort of there was like a sort of arc, you know, yeah. from Kabul all the way back to Kabul. So yeah. this this must I was I, I knew there's some thought must have gone into this and lots yeah. of maybe post-its and, and doodles and stuff like that. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think the structure kind of structuring the book was perhaps probably one of the mo most complicated parts of actually writing it. Um, you know, initially when I was thinking of the book, I thought it was going to be, I guess, a much more traditional or straightforward history book. I was like, well, I'll do like a chronological history. Um, you know, kind of follow, I guess, the trajectory of Afghanistan and, and the Soviet invasion starting actually in April 1978 when the PDPA coup takes place that brings the Afghan socialists into power and then kind of trace that coup, the Soviet invasion, etc. I quickly realized that that just was not going to be possible because the story, um, you know, that that emerged from the archival research that I did in the secondary sources that in kind of existing scholarship that I read was just too complicated and too messy um, and so the structure that I chose, um, I guess I kind of describe it as being as, so it's multi-locational. Um, so it focuses on kind of different sort of key locations across the world and then kind of the key kind of actors or his, you know, historical groups who were active um, in those different locations. Um, and the reason I chose that was to kind of show, I suppose, just you know, how many different, like very, very different groups actually became involved in the Afghan civil war of the 1980s, all of which were bringing in, you know, very different motivations and different, very different interests. Um, and how kind of, if we look at all of those different actors and their motivations together, a very, you know, really complicated story that com comes out. And it ends up being a history that's about Afghanistan. It's a history about kind of South and Central Asia and the Middle East. It's a history about the Cold War, but it's also a history of decolonization and anti-colonialism and a history of kind of the international international sphere in which we live and in which politics sort of takes place. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot yeah. there. And it's <laughs> yeah. and there's like it's like an epistemology of foreign policy, not to even get more, but the, because it's necessarily perspectival. 
Yes. Um, and percept and perceptions change according to place. And then the weird part is this gets very, you know, maybe pseudo, pseudo uh, deep, pseudo Heisenberg. The perspective actually changes what's ha- the reality. Yes. Um, the, you know, the fact, well, we'll get to like sort of the, the perception in Moscow, however erroneous, begins to shape the reality. This percept, and the perceptions of from Islamabad and Washington and Peshawar, they're, you know, they're not the same thing as what's going on, but they end yeah. up shape what's, they shape what's going on. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting is, as you say, if we look at so with with kind of the government, um, the governments that I focus on. So as you said, you know, I focus really heavily on on kind of the Soviet Politburo in Moscow, um, you know, the Carter and Reagan administrations in Washington, D.C., as well as the CIA, um, as well as regional governments um, like those of Pakistan, India, Iran and China. And it's what's so interesting that each of these governments has you know, really in some ways, very, very different interpretations and very different understandings of what's taking place in Afghanistan. And as a consequence, they they formulate these policies which don't necessarily speak to each other or not, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. And so it kind of further complicates matters on the ground. Um, and, and a lot of these sort of international decisions sort of shape the parameters of the ways that local Afghan um, socialists and Islamists, who, who are the kind of groups I really focus on, you know, kind of what sort of activities they can undertake. Um, but it's also a two-way street, right? So like the Afghan socialists, so the PDPA, as well as the Afghan resistance groups are also really going and actively trying to shape, shape and reshape the perspectives of these other foreign governments, um, as well as, inter, you know, as well as international institutions like the United Nations and the UN High Commission for Refugees. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so you would, I'm sure you had the temptation to begin your, well, your story of Afghanistan, maybe with the foundation of Alexander the Great's Transoxiana Kingdom. Um, and, you know, uh, I know you must, you must be brought to the edge of your mental endurance by listening over the last 20, 13 years, all the big galaxy brain techniques, which draw like direct lines between mm. say Alexander the Great's campaigns and what's happening right now? Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, but so you avoid that. But it mm-hmm. turns out that you do have to kind of begin in the 1920s, 1930s, for, to to describe this background because this is you know it. It's not quite the Soviet invasion you're talking about. You're really talking about the the base of the rise and fall of the PDPA in some mm-hmm. ways, right? That's that's sort of at the heart of this at the heart of this story, um, yeah. but. There, there is some backstory. Uh, so let's briefly, uh, let's and briefly and briskly go through this sort of um, this uh, the backstory of Afghan constitutional reform in the in the kingdom of Afghanistan. Yeah. So this book, it kind of yeah, as you say, I I start the book with sort of a contextual chapter that kind of provides, I think, kind of yeah, a very brief history of sort of Afghan twentieth century um, local, national, regional, and international developments. Um, but as you say, too, it's, it very intentionally avoids sort of kind of some of the standard tropes of Afghan history, focusing on kind of the history of Afghanistan as being so-called, you know, supposedly tribal or kind of focusing on those like the great game. Um, and instead, I focus and start with kind of this history of Afghan modernism and thinking about kind of the, some of the earliest Afghan reformers, um, people like um, Mahmoud Tarzi, who are thinking very actively about what what should Afghanistan look like? You know, what should an Afghan state look like? What should it mean to be an Afghan citizen? And what should Afghanistan's place be within a world? 
Um, and these are really important questions, particularly for Afghanistan and Afghan history, um, because, you know, I think it's something that often gets overlooked. But if we think about something like the 1919 Anglo-Afghan War, so the third Anglo-Afghan War, that war actually ends up getting positioned not only within Afghanistan, but also in kind of, I guess, the so-called third world as a really key war of independence. It effectively places Afghanistan at the sort of forefront of 20th century decolonization. So Afghanistan is really seen um, not only by Afghan elites, but, you know, by intellectuals across the world. So in India um, or the Middle East or, you know, in Japan, for example, you know, Afghanistan is seen as kind of what what colonies should aspire to, you know, that there there is an impossibility of, of political um, and cultural independence for for countries and for, you know, and for communities that have been previously under European imperial domination in its various forms. So the story of kind of Afghan modernization is very tied up then in this history of anti-colonialism. And it's really a history then of Afghan leaders thinking about what are the different institutions that Afghanistan needs to kind of propel it forward um, to ensure that it has an independent foreign policy that it can hopefully and ideally become economically self-sufficient, though that's something that never really comes to pass, um, as well as kind of what what are the political forums that best suit Afghans, Afghan elites, as well as kind of this international world in which it's, in which it's sort of active. Um, so that's kind of the history that I tell in that first chapter. And then I kind of explain how it gets, becomes a very messy his- history very, very quickly. Um, because on one hand, we've got these Afghan modernizers and their aspirations, but then they quickly come into conflict with kind of regional developments. So with the partition of independent India and Pakistan, Afghanistan and Pakistan almost immediately come to blows over their shared border and their shared ethnic um, ethnic Pashtun population. So that really complicates um, the project of Afghan state building. And then the Cold War superpowers also become involved, um, you know, from really quite early on. So from the early to mid 1950s, making Afghanistan and Pakistan as a consequence, another sort of, I guess, battleground, in effect, um, in the global Cold War, though one that's being fought largely in terms of sort of economic aid. So the PDPA is formed in Taraki's house. And then how many years later does it take power? Because it's a pretty dazzling uh, rise from, you know, a student group to a ruling party. Yeah, so the PDPA is formed in 1965. Um, But it doesn't formally and officially come to power until April 1978 um, in what the PDPA frames as the Sour or April Revolution. And how did that, (laughs) how the hell did that happen? I mean, in just in 13 years. Uh, And was there, well, I'm getting the PDPA, it's obviously growing as it grows in power and strength. Is there a a simultaneous growth in political Islamism going on as well? And are they just pushing out any other the other any other alternatives like a sort of more, you know, vaguely Islamic nationalism, um, just but more of an Afghan nationalist? Yeah. So I think that's a, the thing that's a really interesting question, and it's a complicated answer. So I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. So I think one of the things, to, I guess, actually, no, two things to keep in mind. So firstly, the April nineteen seventy eight coup in which the Afghan communists or the socialists come to power basically takes everybody's surprise, including including Moscow, including the Politburo. Um, so this this communist coup is is really unexpected. Um, and it emerges through kind of a various set of contingencies. 
Um, and I, I won't get into the specific details, but, um, but basically it's, it's, it's a, it's a really complicated story of kind of the, of the PDPA continuing to try to kind of secretly mobilize throughout the 1970s. Um, some of them, so like some members of the PDPA briefly have some political influence when there's a coup, an earlier coup in Afghanistan in 1973 that briefly gives them sort of a taste of political power and influence. But again, they're almost immediately marginalized. So the PDPA is really a party that's acting from the periphery. But it, you know, but in the 19, by the, by 1978, it had managed to, you know, to effectively penetrate uh, the Afghan army in particular. Um, and it's really kind of some of those relations with the Afghan army that really allowed to mobilize and to launch this completely unexpected so this, coup. This is very classic stuff. I mean, this is like 1917 stuff, you know, just in uh, 70, you know, 60 years on. Oh yeah. And that's definitely how the PDPA sees it as well. They, they, you know, right. they don't say as much immediately, but by November of 1978, you know, Hafizullah is saying, you know, this is the great successor to the Bolshevik revolution, to the great October yeah. revolution. So this, this, I mean, sorry, just to break in, yeah. but <clears throat> something that made me think in, in the course of the book, it's it got to be one of the great ironies of the 20th century that you've got this really classic communist revolution. Mm-hmm. It's happening simultaneously with the Iranian revolution, wrist across the border. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happening just as throughout the rest of the Islamic world, and we'll get to this, the various sort of vaguely socialist nationalist movements uh, from the PFLP to the Ba'ath Party, they're all running out of steam. They're running out mm. of puff, as as your fel- as people in, in Leeds would say. I mean, they're starting, they're, they're not, they're starting to, they, they just, the PLO, they're, they're starting, they're, they're going to start to turn in the 80s. We didn't see it at the, clearly at the time. They're going to start to alternative modes of, you know, more Islamist thinking of politics. Mm-hmm. But here's this throwback, this Afghan throwback to the Bolshevik revolution. It's quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It's such an outlier. Well, it's so interesting because the the PDPA doesn't see themselves as outliers. And I think, you know, no. and I, you see this, especially like in some of, you know, the, the Kabul Times, so kind of one of the main English language newspapers in Afghanistan, and it, it effectively serves as a government mouthpiece. But I think one of the things that's so interesting is if you read the Kabul Times in 1978-1979, the PDPA are drawing all of these comparisons between themselves and socialist movements across the world. So I think one of my favorite examples is that at the same instant, at the same moment in time when the PDPA announces this really, you know, sweeping decision to pursue land reform um, in Afghanistan, they also are celebrating Ethiopia Solidarity Week. Um, You know, they write all about kind of how Ethiopia is this really successful model and Afghanistan is just like Ethiopia. And it's just like Vietnam and a- being able to pursue land reform. So I think one of the things that's really interesting, and I think it's really important as well, is that the PDPA uh, don't see themselves as being unique or exceptional or outliers anyway. Right. They're like, we are part of, you know, we are part yep. of the socialist vanguard. We're just like all of these other parties of these other countries. No, it, this, and this brings us to sort of the Moscow perspective, because, um, you know, you took me back to like studying some of the stuff as an undergraduate political science major. Uh, my uh, undergraduate advisor had written on the Soviet sort of the airlift to Ethiopia. Mm. And, you know, this is where we were, this was uh, at the very, this is after 89. So the cold war was now, it was like gone, going away. Mm-hmm. So already it was ancient history. Um, well, that was, it was very distant. 
And, but you sort of um, take me back to this moment where a bunch of this gerontocracy in the Kremlin suddenly is like looking around with, you know, their roomy, short-sighted eyes around the world and saying, my God, you know, we're on the march. Mm. You know, this is, this is, this is working. Um, but what you make clear to me, which I should have realized, you know, they're not, they're not worried about the United States. They're worried about the damn Maoists. Um, <laughs> so could you, uh, so could you explain this kind of extraordinary moment where Leonid Brezhnev of all people finds himself to be an anti-colonial liberator? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's like, like the dynamics within kind of this, within kind of the Soviet political milieu in terms of how they're debating, kind of debating the relationship between the Soviets and the PDPA, as well as ultimately the kind of decision to intervene militarily are, are really fascinating because I think one of the things that became really clear to me is that there were quite obviously kind of two rather different narratives taking place within Soviet sort of governing circles that were that were not in touch with each other. So there were kind of decisions and discussions taking place amongst, yeah, these like super Soviet elites in the Politburo on one hand, and then their discussions on the other hand, taking place in the International Department and in the KGB on the, the other. International Department, the International Department of the Communist Party, what until Stalin killed them all off was called the Comintern. Yes. But then sort of revived. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So the International Department, which, which you know, in, in all practicalities was largely sort of responsible for a lot of Soviet foreign policy towards the so-called third world. Um, but what's so interesting is the discussions taking place in the International Department are very different from what's taking place in the Politburo. So, you know, within the International Department, there are a lot of debates about about the nature of Afghan socialism. They're like, well, is the PDPA actually socialist? Is it communist? We're, you know, we have some questions about this. We're not really entirely convinced, um, you know, but and of course, that sort of those sorts of questions, as well as like a lot of kind of the questions that. Um, How many you know, kulaks the, can dance on the head of a pin? That kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those, those, those questions are effectively being ignored within the Politburo, where they're like, where they're like, oh, this is, you know, exactly as you said, you know, this is a sign of like socialism's true purpose and promise, and you know, you know, we it is like it is absolutely fundamental that we, as the leaders of the of the you know the socialist world, you know, are are true allies to the PDPA and do everything in our power to to make sure that this regime is a success. Um, and of or course, otherwise, you know, uh, otherwise, it won't be the U.S. They're not worried about USAID. Yeah. Uh, they're not worried about Peace Corps workers. They're worried about the Maoists. Otherwise, the Chinese will sweep in and take advantage of this. And then God knows where, where will we be? Yeah. It'll, the, be like and of Cambod- course, it'll be like Cambodia. Exactly. And of course, then, you know, on the flip side, the Chinese are equally worried about kind of the Soviet machinations in Afghanistan for the exact same reason. So like a lot of those kind of debates are really sort of being defined by the Sino-Soviet split. Um, but, you know, and I think one of the things that, I guess if we look at a political map today versus one in the 1980s, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's perhaps easy to forget that, you know, right in the 1970s and 1980s, Afghanistan shared a border with the USSR. So the thought that the failure of Afghan socialism on the Soviet Union's very borders would have been, was seen as a potential, like, huge, you know, potentially huge source of political embarrassment for the Soviets, and, you know, would really, this thought that it would potentially really undermine, I guess, kind of the socialist international more, more broadly. And yet, just to emphasize this, this is not, this is not, there's no 
um, sort of what the galaxy brains would have. There's no sort of like the Soviets aren't just like engaged in the centuries old great game. It's not like they've been preoccupied with the Afghan situation. I mean, sure, they're preoccupied, they're interested, but they haven't been focused like a laser upon the Afghan problem since 1876. Um, this is th this is all a shock to them. You know, this is all this is a surprise to them. The KGB is surprised. The International Department is surprised. This is this becomes this this drops in their lap and it's not necessary for some of them it's not a good drop thing to drop in their lap yeah so one of the things that's really interesting in that respect is so the soviet union you know had decades long ties with the afghan government so the same afghan government that the pdpa ends up overthrowing yes. So, you know, there's a long history of the Soviets in particular providing economic and development aid to the Afghan state and really helping to propel forward the building of a lot of its, you know, institutions. So, for example, um, the creating the Salong Tunnel that runs under the Hindu Kush Mountains, um, you know, building air force bases, building roads, schools, you know, economic institutions, you name it. Um, and so one of the things that's really interesting is that that the Soviets are actually very keen in the 1970s for the PDPA to work with Mohammed Daoud Khan, um, who was the king of Afghanistan's cousin, who then overthrows him in 1973 and becomes the president of Afghanistan. And so the, the Soviets are initially keen for the Afghan communists to work with Daoud because they see Daoud as a, as a really um, important potential regional ally. Um, so the Soviets, as a consequence, are really taken by surprise and when the PDPA coup actually takes place. Um, and so kind of sort of have to scramble then to kind of decide what to do. Um, obviously, they decide to support the coup, but but it's definitely not not something that was, you know, there, you know, there are always sorts of like conspiracy theories. Being like, well, the Soviets planned for the Afghan communist takeover. Definitely not what I can see from the historical documents, at least. Yeah, uh, at least the ones we can see now. Uh, so, uh, but it's, yeah, it seems it was, it was, uh, yeah, they were, it's, it certainly seems from a lot of other indications that they were really surprised. So, uh, could you describe very briefly, cause the, the, the soap opera of this, uh, is, is pretty, is rich. The sort of the Taraki, Amin, Kamal sort of, you know, pas de do or pas de toi, um, that, and which, which is then, which also then features the Soviet invasion. A Soviet invasion, by the way. Looking at your map, I said, "Oh yeah, this is." They dusted this playbook off on February twenty second, uh, mm -hmm. 2022 for Ukraine. It's like this is what they did in Czechoslovakia. This is what they did in Afghanistan, and you know, this is what they thought they would do to the Zelensky government in Ukraine. It's sort of mm -hmm. more or less the same thing. So, but can we just discuss that because it's it's good stuff? Yeah, it's, so it makes a fine miniseries. Um, yeah, yeah, there there is a lot of drama here, as you say. It is a, it is a lot like a soap opera, um, which is again one of the reasons why I you had I had to go back to 1965 with the creation of the PDPA mm -hmm. then, um, because yeah, so the PDPA is initially is initially founded, and and these four key leaders whom I've mentioned, so Nur Muhammad Taraki, Hafizullah Amin, Babrak Carmel, um, and Muhammad Najibullah, they're all they're all basically there at the founding in different sort of leadership roles. But one of the things that's really interesting is so the PDPA is founded, you know, and initially it's like, ah, you know, we, you know, Afghanistan finally has, you know, its own communist party. And then literally within months, the party effectively implodes. Um, it becomes divided into two different factions, one led by Taraki, one led by Karmal, who have different visions of how um, a communist Afghanistan should be achieved. 
Um, and as a consequence, basically from 1966, you know, like 1965, 1966, up until the mid 1970s, there are effectively two different PDPAs. So they're both calling themselves PDPA, but they're but they're but they're not working together whatsoever. They're very much in competition. Um, and what's sort of interesting is, is actually after Dowd comes to power in 1973, that the KGB um, actually encourages the two parties to reunite in order to work with Dowd and to be able to more effectively sort of effectively infiltrate Dowd's government and take up kind of influential posts within within his regime, not not to kind of kind of conduct their own coup. Um, so anyways, though, so the PDPA that, and, you know, as a consequence is for once united um, and, you know, acts as a unified singular political party to, to set this April 1978 coup into motion. You know, it comes to power. It announces that Afghanistan is undergoing a revolution, that the PDPA is going to lead Afghanistan into, you know, a revolutionary future and, you know, fundamentally change society, politics, economics, culture everything. Um, so these are kind of these broad aspirations that are declared. Um, but then the PDPA implodes again, almost immediately for yet another time. And again, these schisms break out within the party, um, particularly between the factions, um, the factions that back Taraki on one hand and the factions that support Karmal on the other. Um, Taraki is like, I think is very politically shrewd in some respects and he effectively um, ships off Barbara Carmel and all of his supporters to be um, ambassadors in Eastern Europe. So he effectively removes them from, he removes them from Afghanistan. So they can't have any sort of, any sort of real influence. And he, in the meantime, moves on with these really quite ambitious and radical economic and social reforms. And what becomes really clear very quickly is that kind of the mechanisms of these reforms have not been thought through at all. So there's a lot of, for example, of kind of, you know, PDPA cadres going out into the countryside saying land reform is going to happen. We're going to redistribute land. They do so. They're like, job done. Land reform has been a success. And then they go back to Kabul. Um, so there, you know, there end up being a lot of issues in terms of the reforms. And those are... You, and you make ahead. an interesting point. Then and, and later after the Soviet invasion, the Soviet cadres had done this kind of stuff in the 20s and the 30s. Mm -hmm. I mean, although accompanied often by, you know, mass executions too. So let's not forget that part. They're, they've all died off. Mm -hmm. And so even the Soviet Union itself has forgotten how to do this. Yeah. Um, this it, this yeah. sort of go through the process of land reform, go through the process of all this sort of this basically state building that it engaged in, even within ethnic Russia um, mm -hmm. throughout the 20s and the 30s. Yeah, no, as you say, I think, yeah, the lack of institutional knowledge is a real shortcoming, both for the PDPA itself, as well as then the Soviet advisors who come into Afghanistan. But I also think, and the other point I wanted to make and emphasize is your point about mass, mass executions. And this is, I think, actually probably the even more fundamental problem that Taraki's faction of the PDPA run into in Afghanistan, is that they're not only pushing forward with these different reforms really quickly, but they turn to violence almost immediately. So, you know, it's like, you know, just kind of the use of torture, kind of, you know, dis disappearing people, if we can make that a, a gerund or whatever the grammatical word it's is. Been, it's been yeah. done. <laughs> it's been done, you know, exactly. But like the, like the widespread, you know, the really widespread use of violence, you know, only kind of creates an even bigger crisis within the country. 
Um, no, I'm just curious about that. Is um, mm-hmm. are they? Is this violence directed? I mean, I would imagine that Kabul is the epicenter of that violence. Or is this? Or is this violence to bring the peripheries into alignment with the center? So it spreads. Both, I would say okay. so there's, a, I mean, you know, the PDP is using, you know, it's eating its own effectively, right? So for, okay. you know, there's a lot of imprisonment and kind of torture of, you know, I guess members of 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 the PDPA who are not who are not in line with Taraki's regime, um, you know, especially there are a lot of accusations against Karmal's followers that they're that they're plotting against the state, mm-hmm. so they're you know arrested and, and imprisoned and tortured and even killed. Um, there's that. The PDP is also going out and finding and executing po- uh, potential political enemies, um, you know, very influential kind of local families, both within Kabul, but also across the country who, again, could potentially, you know, rise up to be kind of political opponents to the PDPA. Um, and then there's also increasingly just kind of widespread violence against, you know, Afghan citizens who are questioning or resisting any of these forms of forms of reform. And- and so this is these are the conditions that then lead to the Soviet invasion. It's an invasion to basically tamp down this, you know, this regime which they see as going too far. Is that would that be right? Yeah. So so kind of throughout all of this, the Soviets are keep trying to advise Taraki's regime to to moderate both in their expectations and in their policies. And, and Taraki's regime just absolutely refuses to listen. Um, and then to kind of further exacerbate everything, Taraki is then killed by his second in command, Hafizul Amin, um, who, you know, in a power grab, um, Taraki is very ignominiously suffocated with a pillow. Um, and so there's like this, again, a second kind of regime change, with it, regime change within Afghanistan. Meanwhile, Karmal gets in touch with, with the Soviets to be like, hey, you know, I could put in place a, a better, a better, more socialist government. Um so there's this kind of real, I think, feeling that that the that the Afghan socialists are not, I guess, taking a correct course of action, and it looks like there's a real possibility of failure. Is there a worry that uh, that Amin might turn into sort of a Pol Pot? I mean, this must be very. This must. I mean, 1978, 1979. This sort of example on the Vietnamese sort of suppression of the Cambodian of Pol Pot's revolution in Cambodia. This sort of his deviationism. Um, they they must there must be like Mikhail Suslov must think about that. That must be a concern to like the ideologues. Yeah, I think so. One of the real concerns, and I've you know, and there's a there's a lot of debate about it, and I and I haven't decided I haven't entirely decided kind of where I sit on the debate. But there are a lot of rumors uh, that float around about Hafizul Amin making contact with the CIA, um, and hmm. so the CIA has always denied it. So again, I just, I'm not, I kind of, I have questions about the whole kind of the narrative, but it is, it is one popular narrative that, you know, Amin is, he does try to moderate his stance on a lot of different issues um, and in particular in relationship to both Pakistan and the United States. So I think there are questions that emerge then amongst Soviet sort of political circles about, yeah, to what extent is Amin actually still intent on pursuing the socialist path versus mm-hmm. to what extent might he, you know, I guess become an ideological liability. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so, so I think, yeah, there's that insecurity so, as well. So then they invade. Yeah. Um, so what are the briefly? What are the phase? You you divide the war up into what four phases? Yes, four phases. So what what are what are those phases? And when do they? You know how long do they? How long do they take? Yeah. So I'm turning to the page of my book so I get the dates <laughs> right. I have to admit, I'm as a historian, I'm terrible with specific dates. Of course, um, of course. Yeah. So there are, yeah. So effectively four, four main phases 
to the war. So the first lasts from December 1979 to February 1980. And so that actually involves, you know, the direct um, invasion of Soviet forces and effectively them settling into into Afghanistan, installing Barbara Karmal as the new leader of, of Afghanistan and helping to start extend the PDP's influence across the country. The second phase that effectively lasts from March 1980 to April 1985. And again, it's focused on kind of consolidating the PDP's um, rule and, ex- you know, and again, kind of extending, extending and maintaining influence um, against the backdrop of an increasingly vicious civil war. Um, then I guess the next stage is from April 1985 to January 1987, um, where there's during which there is a brief surge, but the fighting is starting to be scaled back as um, Mikhail Gorbachev has come to power and is really debating what the Soviet role in Afghanistan should be. Um, and then really from, it's really, I mean, basically as early as January 1987, the Soviet military uh, presence starts to be get scaled back as Gorbachev makes very clear that, you know, the Soviet invasion has to come to an end. Um, and it's finally then in February 1989 when the final Soviet troops are withdrawn from the country. So, and how much longer does the PT, PDPA exist in power in Afghanistan after the Soviet withdrawal? I mean, the PDP remains in power. I mean, not as the PDPA, but Mohammad Najibullah remains in power until 1992. So his, right. his, you know, his his rule, ironically, the rule of the PDPA, you know, it outlasts the Soviet invasion and it outlasts the Soviet Union itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's now let's sort of move uh, between some of these other international um, perspectives. I mean, the one. Yeah, I talked about it is it is again the the PDPA the PDPA comes to power and the Soviets invade just as this sort of this conjunction uh, with sort of the movement of global Islamic fervor. Yeah, and I guess that can't be in retrospect. It now seems bloody obvious. Didn't seem obvious at the time, (laughs) but it's, it's extraordinarily, it's, it's like one of the most significant conjunctions of events in the 20th century. It seems to me now. Yeah. There's a great, I think it's an interview with Stansfield Turner, who was head of the CIA, um, I think under Carter uh, and an interview with him in the 1990s. And he, you know, he says like, we did not anticipate political, we did not anticipate Islam as a political force whatsoever. Um, which I think, you know, is, is really telling. And that, that's a story I, I talk about quite a lot in terms of, of talking mm-hmm. about U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. But yeah, this is a really, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why I guess the war in Afghanistan is becomes so important because it is really symptomatic, I suppose, of this much more significant global moment where political Islam or um, Islamism, as I call it, is is becoming, is being seen and is being discussed as a really potent political force um, and really is an you know is potentially offering an alternative to you know a world that's divided by cold war superpowers and kind of a world that's divided between kind of capitalism and communism um, so kind of this these debates that emerge in the 1970s about political islam you know they have much longer historical roots um you know they're they, you know they have their roots in sort of pan-islamic movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, but one of the things that's really interesting and that I sort of trace with some of the Afghan groups I look at um, is firstly, you know, the Afghan Islamists um, whom I study are very much embedded in these much broader intellectual networks. So they're really reading and thinking deeply about, you know, about, you know, 
about kind of Islamist intellectuals from across the world. Um, Sayyid Qutb and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt are a particularly important source of inspiration. Um, but also kind of there's like, they're also, you know, very influenced by um, Abuela Madudi in Pakistan, um, you know, even the, um, Khomeini in Iran, etc. But but one of the things that's really important is these these groups see Islam as and kind of the Islam's political roles in a very modern way. And I think that's a really important sort of differentiation between what these groups are hoping to achieve and how how they think Islam functions as a political force, not just a social or theological or cultural force. Um, and they and they're thinking about kind of how can they completely reform Afghan politics politics and society as well as kind of global politics. Um, in ways that sort of draw from Islam, but also apply it in, in, in different ways that also sort of draw on these broader universalist lexicons about kind of questions of rights, kind of questions of kind of, um, you know, questions of self-determination, you know, questions of, you know, the, not like not only but like the judiciary or kind of different different forms of types of reforms that need to take place. And this is happening. What I mean, what makes this a crucible is that this is not just Afghan groups doing this. This is simultaneously happening in different ways in their all in their own unique ways in Islamabad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this as that as Pakistani rulers just are, are are like I don't know flailing is probably too strong a verb, but they're looking for something that will solidify this Pakistani rule, which seems to be on very shaky foundations in the late 70s, so the, the Pakistani state. And a sort of uh, some form of Islamism seems to suit their needs and gives them a different interest in what's going on in Afghanistan and with Afghan refugee groups. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's really important to remember is, you know, in the night, so like we've already talked about, you know, like a lot of these sorts of debates about kind of Islam as a political force are already taking place on Kabul University's campus in the mid-1960s. But really from the mid-1960s through the 1970s, Islamist politics in Afghanistan is super peripheral. You know, these these are not individuals and they're not groups that are in positions of power or particular influence. I mean, a lot yeah, of you these... Would, yeah. you, would, you would definitely invest in the PDPA in short... Uh, political Islam Islamism in, in in Afghanistan it doesn't it's interesting but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the interesting is like neither the PDPA neither I think in the 1970s if if you know if you'd had a crystal ball I don't think you'd have predicted either the PDPA or the Afghan <laughs> Islamists coming to power or kind of becoming kind of the two key forces of the 1980s. Yeah, that's true. So which yeah. is really interesting. Um, but yeah, so earlier on in the 1970s, um, a lot of the Afghan Islamists try to actively resist um, Dawood after he comes to power in 1973. They're very violently suppressed. So most of them actually, um, a lot of them actually flee to Pakistan and become mm-hmm. based around Peshawar and in what was the Northwest Frontier Province of Pakistan, what's now Khyber Pakhtunwa. Um, and they receive active support from the Pakistani government even then largely because of these ongoing tensions between Afghanistan and Pakistan over their border, so the Durand line, um, as well as about kind of Pakistani fears about ethno-nationalist politics. So, you know, this, you know, for Pakistan, if we think about politics in the 1970s, you know, everything's sort of happening in the aftermath of the 1971 war, which effectively served as a second partition of Pakistan, right? You know, it divides um, it divides the two wings of, of Pakistan, East Pakistan, West Pakistan into two separate countries, Bangladesh and Pakistan. And so Pakistani leaders, um, even those like Bhutto who, you know, who are self-professed progressives or liberals are extremely anxious that, you know, that the same thing could happen in Pakistan again. 
um, that, you know, that ethnic Pashtuns in the Northwest Frontier province will effectively demand their own independence and that that Pakistan will be further bifurcated. Um, And so it's really against that kind of that backdrop of fears around ethno-nationalism that that the Pakistani state first under Bhutto and then under the military dictator Muhammad Zia al-Haq support the Afghan Islamist groups. And then, of course, under Zia, Zia himself is a very devout Muslim, and he also sets about um, pursuing, I guess, the, is, is the Islamization of Pakistani politics. So he really finds very ready allies um, amongst the Afghan Islamists, and he, as a consequence, takes the very active decision then to particularly support Afghan resistance groups, so the groups who are fighting against the Afghan communists and the Soviets, he supports the groups who are framing their aspirations for Afghanistan's future in terms of political Islam and not those who are framing it potentially in terms of ethno-nationalism. Which is uh, has great consequences (laughs) for the the history, not just of Afghanistan, but of Pakistan and the United States uh, and many other, and it's, it's, it's a very consequential decision. Um, yeah, we don't have time to get into that. That's probably that's a separate podcast. But <laughs> I, I'm I'm very curious. Um, this is a recurring uh, theme um, that uh, what Moscow and Washington both shared was, I mean, and this is this is not completely true of Moscow, but a lack of interest in the in the possibility of a modern future Afghanistan. Is that a good summary of your judgment that um, eventually, I mean, it just, this, it was always from the Washington perspective. It's, there's all, this is just a short term expedient. This is just a momentary holding action. We don't really care about Afghanistan, qua Afghanistan. We're just interested in this as a, a tactical movement and a larger struggle. Yeah, so I would say if we look at both the U.S. and Pakistan, um, I would say Pakistan of 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 kind of that alliance. Pakistan's definitely more interested in what happens in terms of oh, Afghanistan's yeah. political Pakistan future. Pakistan for sure. Moscow, but, may, yeah. but Moscow and Washington have a, have a much more similar view in that way. I mean, this is this is just um, certainly by 1984, 1985. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think in the early, I mean, I think in the early years. I think in the early years of Soviet, the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan, I mean, you know, I think what becomes really clear is that on the ground and through kind of a lot of different committees and a lot of different sort of parts of the Soviet government, the Soviets are really invested in kind of creating a functioning socialist state in Afghanistan. Yes. They put a lot of money and time and manpower into that project. Um, but it's definitely clear, kind of as you say, that kind of interest in that project certainly declines over time. And it really that it really declines once Gorbachev is in power. Um, so I'd say kind of it's a more more of an evolving story for, for the Soviets. Um, for the government of Pakistan, they're concerned about the future of Afghanistan, but largely in relation, to, it's it's all mostly a question of self-interest, right? So mm-hmm. sure. Pakistan is interested in what happens to Afghanistan in terms of how it potentially affects, um, you know, affects politics and dynamics within Pakistan as well as Pakistan's role within South Asia and the balance of power between Pakistan and India in particular. So there, that, I guess that's kind of the, the more regional story. The United States, I think is, yeah, I, I really frame the United States, I suppose, as kind of the really key outlier in this history. 
um, in terms of not taking seriously any of these sort of Afghan kind of intellectual intellectual or political currents that are going on. Um, and the fact that both, you know, the Carter and Reagan administrations, the Central Intelligence Agency in particular, but also officials across the NSC and the State Department are all extremely dismissive of Afghanistan um, and, you know, and, and really frame Afghanistan and Afghans in extremely reductive ways that ultimately, I think, as we see now, are really politically unhelpful and have these really unintentional long-term consequences. What's interesting is, and I, I don't like to use the word discourse on the podcast, but um, <laughs> what's interesting is that this discourse that you hear, like, well, you know, like I heard it like last, was it last summer? Uh, well, nothing could ever have happened anyway, because this is like a backward medieval civilization mm-hmm. with no f- future. That's been, that discourse goes way back. Yeah. That's like, it's maybe very different people saying it, not always. Sometimes it's actually some some senators are the same people that say it, um, but it's amazing how old this is and how yeah. it, 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 people people are just and I know how this is people just remember someone else saying and then pick it up when it suits them and 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 and, and babble it. Yeah. So kind of in a longer historical perspective, I mean, American perspectives on Afghanistan um, really owe a lot to British colonial perspectives and ideas. Um, and you and you really, I mean, you really see that in all of the American documents. So American officials, like their British predecessors, are very focused on the idea of Afghanistan as being backwards, the idea that Afghanistan is tribal, and that you can only understand Afghanistan through the through the perspective or through the lens of the tribe and tribal politics. Um, and then this idea, um, which is really self-limiting as well, is that. Afghans have a very limited understanding of Islam, but that doesn't even matter because Islam is not an important political force. It's, you know, it's something, and, you know, the CIA says this, you know, that they're like, Islam is, you know, is something that local populations turn to when they feel threatened by modernization and modernity. Jeez, so it's like, it's like secularization theory in CIA, in CIA memos. It's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's wrong there too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so yeah. So these ideas are, are so self-limiting. I mean, I think one of the, um, it's like, I think is it ambassador, U.S. ambassador theater, Elliot, when he describes meeting Muhammad Daoud Khan, bef- um, right. But, you know, before, before the, before the PDPA coup, you know, he's like, Oh, Daoud's just like sitting bull. So the Lakota chieftain and that he's like, you know, and it's like, he's like, Dowd is the, is the, um, you know, is like the chief of, of his tribe, which is Afghanistan. And that's like, it's a really, obviously it's a really simplistic way to describe it, but it's also like, it means that, that America, a lot of American observers don't actually understand what's taking place in Afghanistan. They don't take seriously all of these different political currents. Um, and that really ends up affecting the ways that the U.S. engages with these groups, or I should say doesn't engage with these groups or take them seriously. Um, or think about how they could potentially lead a post-withdrawal Afghanistan. Uh, Let's uh, before we before we conclude. I want uh, one fascinating chapter is the perspective from an Afghan refugee settlement. Um, yes. And could you could you pronounce that for me because I don't want to do damage to it. So Nazarbag uh, is Nazarbag. Yeah. Um, so by nineteen seven. And I kind of vaguely remember this. I was I'm I'm so old that I I can remember the invasion of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, but that but I, I I'm trying to recapture in my head some of the stats that people were tossing around by the mid '80s. What percentage of the Afghan population had become refugees had had left Afghanistan? 
Yeah, so by 1990, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimated that 6.8 million Afghans were living abroad, um, you know, as a consequence of the civil war, and that was more than half the population. So more than half of Afghanistan's population was displaced either outside of Afghanistan or within Afghanistan because of the conflict. Um, right. Have, yeah. And this is, and this then gets to the question. And this, I mean, this led to like. I mean, on a on a on a on a bonus, this led to good Afghan restaurants in Baltimore. It turned out that was run by the Karzai family, uh, but the um, but these people were not starting restaurants in Baltimore. They were living in extraordinary privation, in abysmal conditions in the tribal regions of Pakistan, um, and um, they were dealing with what it meant to be an Afghan when you were no longer living in Afghanistan, which is like the this is the this is the heart of the refugee problem, I guess. Yeah, I have to say the chapter in Nazarbug and the Afghan refugee crisis is the one in this book that I feel most passionate about. Um, and because it's the most I mean, it's the human element of this history that almost always gets overlooked. I mean, it's shocking mm-hmm. to me, you know, there, you know, there aren't there, you know, there aren't even dozens of histories of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But the ones that do exist almost entirely overlook this refugee crisis and the Afghan refugee crisis of the late 1970s and 1980s was one of the biggest refugee crises the modern world has ever known. Um, and, you know, yeah. even and to it, this... To this day, I mean, and it leads to everything that we've seen since, in many ways, comes yeah. out of the refugee crisis. And, and of course, it it's still going on right now yes. for, for different yeah. reasons. So this is an unending, an unending crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the statistics I saw recently, I think it was like Afghans are still like the fourth largest displaced population in the world. That might that might not be exactly right, but it's it's one of the most displaced popu- um, you know, populations in the entire world. Um, you know, I think the Afghan refugee crisis is is the real is the real tragedy of of the war. I mean, it, I think it really illustrates you know the huge and overwhelming and systemic violence that really defines this conflict in which civilians were really caught in the crossfire. Um, and I think one of the things I try to emphasize then with looking at this process of forced displacement and forced migration is that you know Af- many of these Afghan refugees left Afghanistan to escape the reforms and the envi- and the violence um, that were particularly being launched by the PDPA. But, you know, it's sort of out of the fire, into the firing, you know, into the frying pan or whatever, out of the frying pan, into the fire, in that, uh, you know, the refugee camps, you know, become equally these sort of location where, where there are all of these different forces that are also trying to sort of manipulate and change Afghan lives in every single way. Um, and you see this with a lot of the NGOs that are involved, you know, the UNHCR, you know, is really responsible for kind of monitoring and sort of trying to reshape Afghans' daily lives in extremely intimate ways, you know, you know, from kind of monitoring individuals' health to, you know, what are they eating, you know, their education, you know, what, you know, what sort of social practices are they pursuing, you know, how, you know, what sort of professions are they potentially going to have? Um, so the UNHCR is really sort of meddling in Afghans' lives you know, at every moment of every day, because they have that ability to because of the ways that these refugee camps are set up under the auspices of UNHCR. But alongside that, then these Afghan resistance groups, and you know, including these Afghan Islamist parties, are also using these camps, not only as recruiting grounds, but are also, you know, taking very active political roles within these camps too, and serving as intermediaries 
between refugees on the one hand and kind of these international institutions and organizations on the other. Um, so dynamics in these camps become really, really complicated. But of course, one of the tragedies as well, though, is that you know some of the Afghan resistance groups and Gulbuddin Hekmatyars is particularly guilty of this. Um, these parties are just as ready to use violence against refugees settled in Pakistan, um, you know, as as they are in terms of fighting the war in Afghanistan. So you know, it, as you say, like you know, it, the situation remains almost just as fraught in a lot of ways. Well, I, I'm. We have to start wrapping this up. So I think this is the the perfect place to say. I mean. Um, why'd you get interested in this? Uh, what's, what's your, what's your background? What I'm, I'm never sure what international history is. Um, it's like, it's stuff I like, I guess that, I mean, you know, what? okay. International history, but, um, h- how'd this happen? So, I mean, I think part of it is, is I guess my training and interest and passion for history. And I think part of it's probably the time in which I was growing up. So I should say, I actually started working on the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands. And I should say my hist- my research initially focused more on Pakistan than Afghanistan. Um, and I became interested in this actually as an undergraduate. Um, and I was interested in that time, I guess, in British imperial history, but also the history of the modern Middle East against the backdrop of, you know, the, of the wars and or the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know, I think those, you know, 9-11 and then the invasion of Iraq in particular, I think were really important for me in terms of my own, I suppose, like political mobilization and awakening. So I think I think I was really interested in studying both the past, but also understanding the present. Um, a supervisor back then was just like, oh, everybody's working on the Middle East. You should work on you should work on the Northwest Frontier, colonial India instead. And, you know, as a desperate undergraduate, I was like, OK, that sounds great. Um, and that somehow became both my my first book, you know, after many years um, on the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands. And then that kind of interest kind of expanded even further into this into this history of Afghanistan. So how do you do research on one of the most dangerous places uh, now in the world and one of the hardest places to like, how do you access information about it? I mean, if it's in the colonial yeah. office records, I, that helps. Um, but how do you do, I mean... I'm really struck struck by the, the perspectives that we that we mentioned. I'm struck by the linguistic barriers, but also the archival barriers. It's really hard to access now the KGB files mm-hmm. if they're not if they're not at the Hoover Institution um, and, and so on. So how do you how do you overcome the linguistic, uh, but also just the various fact that these some of these archives are are are, are blocked off for other reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is really important to emphasize, and I think historians, as historians, we're not necessarily always really great about doing this, but, you know, the histories we produce are always really contingent on these exact questions. You know, what, you know, what, you know, what time do we have? What funding do we have? What languages are we able to learn with that time and funding or lack thereof? What archives are we able to access, again, with time and funding or lack thereof? Um, I was exceptionally lucky with this project in being able to go to archives, you know, across South Asia, across Europe and across North America. Um, but I also, you know, there are limitations to this project, just like there are for any. So I chose to prioritize learning Russian for this project because I, I knew that the Soviet perspective and the Soviet archives needed to be in here. Um, but that meant there was a, you know, there was a payoff to that, which meant I wasn't able to use Dari or Persian or Pashto language sources um, in this in this book. I you know that was that had been part of the initial plan, but it just it didn't 
it didn't come to pass for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I think one of the things, and I guess this is kind of where that international history training comes into play in particularly important ways. So my research really sits at the sort of uncomfortable intersection between South Asian history on one hand and international history on the other. But I guess in terms of international history methods and international archives, I think being able to triangulate, I guess, information across an international set of archives provides a lot of opportunities. Um, and what became really clear to me in researching this book is that, you know, this is a book that focuses largely on Afghan elites and intellectuals. It's not like an on the ground subaltern history of Afghanistan or in Afghanistan during the war. But these Afghan and elites and intellectuals whom I'm writing about, they they acted locally, but they also thought globally. So their voices can be found across archives across the world. Um, you know, it's like Afghan, you know, these Afghan political parties, they were lobbying the UN, they were lobbying the UNHCR, they're in, you know, they're in correspondence, um, you know, with kind of, you know, government officials in the US and the Soviet Union, you know, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're promoting their manifestos in multiple languages in English and Arabic and Dari and Pashto, you know, in French. Um, so they're, they're very multilingual themselves. And that was a point in which that I was a key to emphasize, you know, these are my, the, my Afghan interlocutors in this, in this history, they're global, they're fundamentally global actors. And that required me to tell a global story. So I was lucky in the archives I was able to access when I wrote this book. Um, but I should say I visited Moscow, for example, in September, 2019. And I realized that even now I wouldn't be able to necessarily access the archives um, I was able to access then now, I mean, especially with things like visas and, and the like. So, um, so there was a lot of contingency built in, into, built into this project and, you know, and I, and I try to be pretty honest about what I am able to do in the book and yeah. also the many things I am not able to do in it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very good to emphasize that contingency because, um, you know, uh, we could, Tehran could be one of the chapters and maybe, yes. and someday someone will write that. Uh, when I was looking at the list of like revolutionary groups in Afghanistan, there are like some interesting Shiite groups. Um, there are archives. Yes. I, can, I can, I can bet their archives are in Tehran and we won't know yeah. about those for a while. Yeah. I should say, and in that respect, I can shout out my um, really fantastic colleague, Timothy Newton, who's based in Berlin, who's doing some amazing research, I think on those Iranian Afghan connections because he has mm. amazing language skills. Um, that I don't have, but yeah, no. Equally, like another chapter, people have asked, like you have, you have amazing enough language for an American <laughs> historian. You have amazing uh, language skills. What you have? What? How many? You have three now. Uh, I mean, you're like almost four, up to I've, medieval levels. I've got like four and I've got four and a half. Let's call it okay. <laughs> to be okay. to be kind. But yeah, um, but but yeah, no. Like likewise, like you know, the Saudis could have been a really interesting factor in this history. That again, I just didn't. I wasn't able to explore. Right. But, right. But hopefully, um, somebody else will. So, yeah. Some someone will hopefully someone else will, but yet I, I began the conversation by saying you know that you have you obviously your your context didn't go all the way back back to Alexander the Great, um, but you know given your reason why you're interested in this history, it is significant to me that like in your penultimate uh, uh, paragraph, you say we cannot draw direct or absolute parallels between the current war in Afghanistan and that of the 1980s. And like policymakers around the country who finally get to that paragraph are like, why not? Come on, we do it all the time. Why, why, yeah. why do you draw back from that? I mean, this is why you're interested. This is kind of why you're interested yeah. in it. Why, why not? It's only 20 years. 
<laughs> it's only 30 years. <laughs> I know. This is, I mean, I think this is this is probably the historian, you know, the, the historian's answer. And I think why policymakers don't necessarily like speaking to historians because we're always like, well, it's really complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think. Oh, we, also, we also use complicated as a verb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, this, you know, yeah. So I basically, in the conclusion of the book, I, I finished in, two, with two, in 2001, right before, before 9/11, the 9-11 attacks. And then in the epilogue, I, I talk, kind of, kind of give a very, very brief overview mm-hmm. of events between the, so, um, the American invasion of Afghanistan in, in 2001 up to, um, up to the American withdrawal in 2022. I should say in the course of the book, I had to rewrite the epilogue three or four times because events kept changing so quickly, which I think was one of the reasons... I think especially kind of when I submitted the fi- what ultimately became the final version of the epilogue, it was at a moment of such huge political flux within Afghanistan and a moment of such huge tragedy within Afghanistan. It was just like, I don't really know what lessons my book has for this specific current moment when so much is unknown as to what's going to happen in Afghanistan's future. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important in terms of thinking about events in, in, in Afghanistan post-2001 versus the 1980s is firstly that so many of the dynamics, so many of the key individuals and figures who play a key role post-2001 emerge because of the developments of the 1980s. So you kind of you can't understand what happens in Afghanistan post-2001 without understanding this earlier history. But also kind of the power dynamics are very different in this post-2001 post world. I mean, right, there's no longer kind of the Cold War. I mean, the U.S. in many respects was acting much more unilaterally. Um, and and the kind of, there's a very different, I suppose, kind of regional political milieu. You know, as you said earlier, right, that, that you know, 2001 is a moment where, you know, where everyone's like, yes, we should have taken political Islam much more seriously. Um, so, you know, I think in that respect, it's a very different world. There are definitely some parallels I think we can explore, but I think it's it's thinking about kind of, I guess history is more of an evolution evolutionary process rather than a comparative process. Um, I think is what I'm, I'm key to draw out. My guest today has been Elizabeth Leak. She is the author of Afghan Crucible, The Soviet Invasion and the Making of Modern Afghanistan. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 